Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're a part of a crew, nobody ever tells you that they're going to kill you. It doesn't happen that way. There aren't any arguments or curses like in the movies. Your murderers come with smiles. They come as your friends, the people who have cared for you all your life. And they always seem to come at a time when you're at your weakest and most in need of their help. So I met James Comey, Jimmy, in a crowded place we both knew. I got there 15 minutes early and I saw that Jimmy was already there. He took the booth near the window so he could see everyone who drove up to the restaurant. He wanted to make sure I wasn't tailed. He was jumpy. He hadn't touched a thing. During the campaign against Hillary, Jimmy would have ordered doubles and eaten it all. On the surface, of course, everything was supposed to be fine. We were supposed to be discussing our emails, just like we always would. But I had a feeling Jimmy was trying to sense whether I was going to rat him out to save my neck. It's going to be okay. I think you got a good chance of being the case. How? But you know that kid... You know, from the city we're talking about? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah? The kid turned out to be a rat. As soon as he got pinched, he ratted everybody out. He ratted us all out. I know where he is. He's hiding now. He's, you know, he's... You know I'm saying? Would you have a problem going with Anthony on vacation? He'll take care of it. No, not at all. I wait, I got nothing. Huh? Now, Jimmy had never asked me for facts to back up my tweets before. But now he's asking me to go down to Florida to hit some balls and stay off Breitbart, Morning Joe, Fox and Friends, Twitter. That's when I knew I'd never come back from Florida with my insecure Samsung phone, with my real Donald Trump Twitter login, with the password, all caps, America, save for convenience. I was going to be busy all day. I had to send out some tweets to match some classified intelligence I just read on Breitbart. Turns out that Kenyan socialist had tapped Trump Tower. Nothing found. McCarthyism. I had to hit some balls on the course with some foreign guy whose name I can't even pronounce and hook him up with some Trump steaks on the alfresco patio at Mar-a-Lago. And then I had to find some scotch tape for my necktie. Trump brand. Made in China, the best ties. To fly up to some customers I had back in Washington. At least Arnold got fired. Pathetic ratings. You terminated. Right away I knew Jimmy didn't respect my tweets. I knew I was going to get stuck with his fake questions about evidence. I only hammered on the damn Hillary emails at the end because his letter was so tremendous. And now he didn't want my tweets. What the fuck are these things? They're not fit. What's the matter with you? What do you want me to pay for this shit? I'm not paying for it. I didn't say a thing. Jimmy was so pissed, he didn't even say goodbye. I bet a good lawyer could make a great case out of the fact that President Obama was tapping my phones in October, just prior to the election. I knew my guys, Bannon, Gorka, Miller, always wanted my tweets. And since I was going to see them later in the afternoon to pick up a delivery, I was pretty sure I'd get my mojo back. This is Intercepted. (laughs) 
I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is Episode 7 of Intercepted. On Tuesday, Donald Trump jumped out from behind a screen in the White House and surprised a bunch of school children on a White House tour. In unrelated news, Trump also jumped on Twitter and apparently surprised the intelligence community by accusing former President Barack Obama of tapping him, of wiretapping, uh, as he put it, Trump Tower. The notorious B.I.G. famously alleged that the feds were angered by his flagrant nature, and therefore they tapped his phones. It seems that Easy D, the notorious DJT, also believes the feds had beef with him. Now, Trump's spokespeople had a pretty brutal few days trying to explain what the hell Trump was talking about and where he actually got this information, and it still remains pretty damn murky. That's because, as of now, it really does seem that it's likely that Trump got it from this bizarre labyrinth of rumors that ended up on Breitbart News as a story. And of course, Breitbart News is the official publication of Hair Force One. But defend it, the administration did. He's the president of the United States. He has information and intelligence that the rest of us do not. I think the president's tweets speak for themselves. The president firmly believes that the Obama administration may have tapped into uh, the, the phones at Trump Tower. And is that based on media? Now, a bunch of Obama-era intelligence officials, they also rushed onto TV to say, we have no idea what Trump's talking about. Uh, Though some of those denials were curious, and we're going to discuss that in a few minutes. But where this story gets really nutty is when James Comey enters the scene. James Comey, of course, is the FBI director, and he was one of the only officials that Trump kept in their top positions when the transition happened from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. And Comey, as you recall, gave what many viewed as this boost to Trump in the waning moments of the campaign against Hillary Clinton when he published this memo basically saying, hey, this investigation into her emails is really intensifying. Well, it seems now that James Comey is probably not going to get any invitations to hang out at the Winter White House anytime soon. The New York Times reported that when Comey read Trump's tweets about President Obama tapping Trump Tower, that he asked the Justice Department to go and actually publicly reject Trump's assertions. Now, that has not happened, and it very well may not happen. Now, the Trump strategy seems to be shifting to push from his Twitter feed over to Capitol Hill and assign the Republicans on the Intelligence Committees and others in Congress to use public funds to retroactively investigate and come up with evidence to prove that what Trump was saying on Twitter that he likely obtained from Breitbart, that it actually is true. So bottom line, why would the president want Congress to investigate for information he already has? I, I think there's a there's a separation of powers aspect here, as I mentioned to Jonathan, uh, that we think it's... Resources uh, and time. Why waste that? Well, it's not a question of waste it. It's a question of appropriateness. So, but, but President Trump's Twitter statement shouldn't be taken at face value about what... Sure, it should. Of course it. I mean, why, what? No. Now, just because Trump's making allegations on Twitter based on whatever he last read on Breitbart or saw on TV doesn't mean there isn't something to actually discuss here and to look at carefully. And what we want to do now is actually sift through this, analyze it, see if there is a, a there there or if there is some shred of legitimacy to even digging into this story. Now, remember, Obama's director of national intelligence, James Clapper, he lied under oath on this issue of whether the NSA was collecting personal data on millions of Americans. We know the NSA has vast surveillance powers. The FBI also has vast surveillance powers, and the FBI also has a pretty dirty record of politically motivated surveillance. And with this Trump-Russia shit, there's definitely a lot of smoke there, especially when it comes to people like his former campaign manager, Paul Manafort and Carter Page. And then you have this like pandemic of amnesia that has just struck the Trump inner circle over 
who met with Russia's ambassador to the United States. Uh, I don't recall. Now, is it possible that a so-called FISA warrant, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant, was ordered that authorized the surveillance of one or more Trump associates or a physical property? That FISA order would be needed for certain kinds of surveillance in the United States or against American citizens. Or was there a criminal warrant that authorized some sort of surveillance connected to Trump associates or a Trump property? Former officials and the current FBI director, they appear to be saying no, no to both. But moreover, if there was some sort of surveillance, was it actually aimed at Donald Trump or his campaign? Or is there something we just don't know yet about who may have been investigating whom for what? With this administration, it's a really fucking insane challenge. Uh, Given the tangled web of private interests, conflicts of interests, lies, misdirection, and a side order of total batshit insanity. Joining me now to break this down into something we hope vaguely resembles an explanation are two people. Matthew Cole is an investigative reporter here at The Intercept. His latest bombshell expose really is is like a, a small book called The Crimes of SEAL Team 6. It's a phenomenal work of journalism, and I recommend everyone read it. And we're joined by Marcy Wheeler. She is, without a doubt, one of the smartest, most dogged researchers and journalists I know. Her website, Empty Wheel, is really must-read for people that truly geek out on national security and secrecy and espionage. I want to uh, welcome Marcy Wheeler to Intercepted. Thanks. Matthew Cole, good to have you here, too. Thank you. Marcy, let's begin with you. So walk us through your analysis of this whole Trump wiretap mess. It's a game of telephone that ends up in a Breitbart article that Trump reads and kind of goes nuts. But it goes back to a story on a server that was a Trump server that was pinging Alpha Bank in Russia and also Spectrum Health here in Grand Rapids. You guys debunked it. I debunked it. A bunch of security people said, here's what it really probably is. Very importantly, it was about a server in Philadelphia, not a server in Trump Tower, But this former Tory MP, rock star promoter, wife turned investigative tweeter wrote about it. She got a tip that there was a FISA order on, you know, associated with the Trump investigation. She wrote about it and she said that the server in question was in Trump Tower. Andrew McCarthy picked it up and said it was improperly investigating crimes versus intelligence. There was the whole EO 12333 sharing thrown in. So Breitbart packages that up and at each stage kind of makes it worse. Trump, coming off a really angry response to Jeff Sessions recusing from the Russian investigation, reads it and then just goes nuts on Saturday morning. Uh, And now we had James Clapper, the former director of uh, national intelligence, said on on some of the Sunday shows. I can't speak officially anymore, but uh, I will say that for the part of the national security apparatus that I oversaw as DNI, there was no such wiretap activity mounted against uh, the the president-elect at the time or as a candidate or against his campaign. You parsed some of his words and and found some interesting uh, uh, gaps in what he didn't say or how he said the things that he did. And we should say that James Clapper himself is a known, proven liar on the issue of what kind of data is being collected on American citizens. So talk about James Clapper's response to all of this. This FISA order story has only been reported on by an American journalist uh, with McClatchy single source confirming it. Everything else has been British. And the more credible versions of that story say it was targeted at not just Alpha Bank, but another Russian bank. And that by itself didn't make a lot of sense. But in any case, he denied a narrow claim, which is that anybody associated with Trump's campaign was the target of the FISA order. And remember that key people that we've been talking about, Paul Manafort and Carter Page, both left the campaign. So once they leave, are they then fair game to not be included in that denial for for James Clapper, given his least untruthful statements in the past could be? So Marcy, for people that don't follow this stuff on a granular level like you do, just explain what a FISA court order is. As used in this description, it has been taken to mean an individualized order used to collect 
in the United States. So if James Clapper or Jim Comey wanted to wiretap you or me, he would have to go to the FISA court and they'd have to say, okay, you know, Jeremy Scahill, bad guy, Marcy Wheeler, bad girl. We're going to individually wiretap that person. You can also target it at a facility. So you can target it at, say, a bank or a server. But generally speaking, what we're talking about is individualized orders to conduct intelligence wiretapping in the United States. But again, the other important thing to remember is the intelligence community has this kind of gimmick on language such that if they were targeting Anwar al-Awlaki in Yemen, and we know they did, and an American spoke to Anwar al-Awlaki, then that American would also be picked up, but would not be treated as the target of that surveillance. That would be called incidental collection. It doesn't give the American any more protections. It's just the intelligence community's easy way of excusing the fact that they're collecting on all these Americans and they don't have a warrant or any any probable cause for these other people, just that they're talking to Anwar al-Awlaki. Matthew Cole, in the, um, in the, the bigger picture here, um, there's been a debate about whether or not there is a deep state. You've spent your, the better part of your life as a journalist investigating covert uh, Navy SEAL operations, the inner workings of the CIA. Uh, what is your read on these questions around Trump's relationship with the intelligence community? And if there is a sort of secret heroic cabal within the intelligence community that is fighting to save us all from the Trump administration? The question of deep state is sort of, um, as many things are in our current political environment, sort of a a mishmash of multiple things. Some of it is legitimate and some of it's illegitimate. I think that there's no question that the national security state, the Department of Defense, um, the intelligence community are comprised of uh, professionals who spend 20 to 30 years working in those jobs, sometimes more. And those jobs don't turn over when uh, presidents leave and enter the White House. And so there is a continuity there that makes them both experts and also the people who move the levers within the executive branch for collection, for activity, for espionage. And to the extent that those people have uh, worked together, uh, have knowledge that the average American doesn't have, that politicians who until they become president or get the kind of security clearance and access that they can get in never see, that does exist. And the possibility or the ability to manipulate or use information that's behind that, uh, you know, on the high side, as they call it, the, the very classified wall that is behind top secret clearances, it is absolutely possible. And we know historically that presidents use that secrecy to omit and hide and then selectively reveal or leak out other parts of a narrative to push, you know, a political gain of theirs, whether it's getting reelected or, you know, trying to sell a war. If you want to call that the deep state, then there absolutely is a deep state. On the other hand, I don't think that what we're seeing here is the noble uh, work of intelligence professionals who are trying to save the republic from the disaster that could be uh, President Donald J. Trump. I think what we are seeing is a concerted effort to leak what may have been picked up in the waning days of the Obama administration and where there is any sense of smoke in this narrative, they are leaking all of the smoke. And I just want to say I'm not knocking the reporters, by the way, I'm not implicitly knocking the reporters. The Post and the New York Times and CNN have done a great job. They're doing a fantastic job of reporting out what the intelligence professionals under the previous administration and to some extent the carryover into this administration believe is smoke. Now, they imply, all of it seems to imply that there's fire, that there is deep collusion between the president and his men with uh, Putin and the Russian government. Uh, There has been zero evidence to show that thus far. And where the deep state narrative gets grafted onto that, that becomes, I think, very troubling and dangerous because we don't know who the officials who are leaking the information is. And we, I think, you know, I I go back to uh, Brennan's last public 
statements when he was still um, director of central intelligence. He went on uh, the Fox News program with uh, Chris Wallace. And to be honest, he was sort of stunning that there was a sitting head of U.S. intelligence when asked the question about whether or not the U.S. intelligence community and the uh, had gathered evidence that the incoming president, the president-elect, had colluded with a foreign adversary, he didn't deny it. And so if we did come into uh, contact with that type of information, it would have been shared with the FBI, and we would make sure that our intelligence committees then were aware of it as well. That is really stunning, and, and a real act, I think, of partisan, you know, political, you know, he was acting like a political hack on the behalf of his former boss, the president, who, for whom he was very close to and very loyal. And in that regard, you end up with uh, Donald Trump coming in as president, furious with the intelligence agencies. And I'd argue he has a right to be. That, that you know, they made a very clear message that we don't like you, we don't want you. You may even be illegitimate. And to the extent that you may be illegitimate, we're going to try to dig it up. You're getting this war going between the president, the White House, and the intelligence agencies. And there have been times in this mess thus far that I've been sympathetic to the White House because it it is dangerous if there is no fire. If it's just smoke, then the repetitive accumulation of leaks, it threatens the stability of the executive branch. And leave aside who is currently occupied in the, the White House, that is that to me is really scary. Well, uh, Matthew Cole clearly is not auditioning for a job as a uh, political pundit on MSNBC, and he will not be cited in a positive way by the chief of the resistance, uh, Keith Olbermann. Marcy Wheeler, I wanted to ask you, David Frum, former George W. Bush uh, speechwriter who now is being celebrated by a lot of the law and order Democrats as this ally of theirs, tweeted uh, recently, the deep state otherwise known as, quote, uniforms that guard you while you sleep. What's your read on this whole discussion about the deep state with regard to the Trump administration? I would echo echo Matthew's comments that he described what John Brennan said on his way out the door, not denying that there was evidence of collusion between Trump and the Russians. The less noticed aspect of what Clapper said on Sunday, he denied far more categorically that they had any evidence of collusion when he left. We did not include any evidence in our report, and I say our, that's NSA, FBI, and CIA with my office, the Director of National Intelligence, that had any reflection of collusion between members of the Trump campaign and the Russians. There was no evidence of that included in in our report. I understand that, but does it exist? Not to my knowledge. So you can go through January 20th, both he and Brennan were gone, and at that point there was no evidence that the IC had seen of any collusion between Trump and Russians with regards to the hack of the Democrats. One of the other things that I think is going on, I mean, there there are two possibilities. One is there are things that are illegal and there are things that are impeachable. And it is possible that the IC has determined unto itself that they believe there is impeachable stuff affecting Trump, whether it's that he does business with a bunch of mobbed up Russians, whether it's that he is favorable to a bunch of Russians in a way that stinks. And one of the things that feels like is happening is that they're pointing the way towards not any criminal charges against Trump, but towards impeachment. Um, And I think Matthew's right that that's a little bit dangerous for the CIA to make in the dark. These decisions are, are meant to be political decisions made by members of Congress. And then the other thing that does need to be said is Trump ran on being friendly to Russia. An easing of tensions and improved relations with Russia from a position of strength only is possible, absolutely possible. Whether you like that policy or not, he was upfront about the fact that he wanted to be far friendlier to Russia than Obama had been. And that put his policy in a far more conciliatory position than CIA's policies. At that level, I think it is possible what we're seeing is a policy disagreement, that Trump is talking to Russia's ambassador to the United States because they want to establish warmer relationships with Russia. But from the CIA's perspective, that deems Russia this increasingly grand threat. That is deemed suspect in a way that really the evidence thus far doesn't support. 
what would the grounds be for the impeachment if they're gathering that way? What would be the the grounds to do it? Well, you know, I think the idea is that Trump is susceptible to blackmail by the Russians or maybe this insinuation that he wants to be friendlier with the Russians because he has all these business deals with mobbed up Russian businessmen. I don't know. I mean, but that's what it feels like to me is that the smoke is meant to sustain an impeachment. And, you know, and of course, that in a, of itself is suspect because most Republicans would prefer to see Mike Pence as, as president than Donald Trump. And ultimately, impeachments are political events. I don't know that the evidence is there, but I can see how Congress would get picked up in a frenzy and impeach Trump based on on all this stuff coming out. Well, one of the things that I think is very that strikes a chord with me, Marcy, and what you're saying is that I, I do think we are going to see from certain quarters of the establishment Republican Party, particularly people close to Dick Cheney, is uh, more and more discussion about the 25th Amendment to the Constitution and this idea that Trump could sort of be, uh, you know, declared an invalid, basically, um, or Trump could decide that he just doesn't want to be president anymore. And as you point out, Mike Pence is, for all practical purposes, Dick Cheney's guy. You know, this administration is a pretty fascinating one because it's a massive conflict there is a a fissure tectonic plates that are that are rubbing up against each other between you know essentially Breitbart versus the RNC um, the GOP uh, establishment which Pence represents Priebus versus Bannon and and Miller and on the one side the Breitbart side you've got these guys coming in saying we're going to get rid of an entire layer of government I mean this is Reaganism uh, on steroids, which is we want no government effectively. We want chaos. I mean, you, you know, I've seen some of Trump's cronies defending him by saying this is what he does best. He does chaos. He brings it in and then he manages the thing and it's it's brilliant. And you almost wonder if he isn't crazy like a fox to a certain extent. And then you have the establishment guys. You have a hard line, old line GOP. Um, you know, Tillerson, uh, Secretary of State Tillerson is there because uh, former uh, Secretary of Defense Bob Gates recommended him. Uh, and so did uh, former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice. And of who, course, who also has a, a Chevron oil tanker named after her. Right. And, and but Gates, Rice and Hadley have a consulting company that, together and they represent the, you know, to the extent that we're describing it here, the Dick Cheney, George W. Bush, I mean, the, you know, the Bush 43 wing of the party. And they, of course, are, in terms of government, total professionals. Uh, leave aside ideology, you know, just for a second. Uh, they are, in fact, professionals. And you have this Breitbart wing, which is the opposite. They, are, they campaigned on not being professionals. They want, they're draining the swamp. Uh, and clearly it's working, right? Even, you know, from week to week, the chaos that's going on is phenomenal. It's an amazing political civil war. Yeah, I, w- I want to uh, I want to close by talking about the issue of of Yemen. I mean, f- first of all, just to step back and say that we've we've now seen more stri- airstrikes, whether drones or conventional aircraft, in just a matter of days by Donald Trump than we did in the entire last year of Obama's presidency. And one of the things that I think is happening here, and I say I think, uh, just as someone who's followed this closely, is that it's an attempt to justify that raid by saying, we're running the deck now, we're going to knock all of these uh, uh, guys out, and this is all based on the intel that we gathered, and therefore, the fact that we lost a Navy SEAL is justifiable because we're, we're just pounding the hell out of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula now. Matthew Cole, I mean, again, I want to emphasize that's a theory of mine. I'm not saying I have any evidence to suggest that, but I think it's a solid theory. What's your read on, on, on what's happening now in Yemen with the Trump administration? They sold it. To, I, I know this. They sold the raid to him as this could be your bin Laden raid because they were going after somebody. Uh, it was not computers. You don't send 30 SEAL members of SEAL Team 6 uh, into a country that is not a declared war zone for computers. It just doesn't happen. And they they said, hey, this could be your thing. You could you know, really take a dent in al-Qaeda and make a big splash early on, you know, like uh, bin Laden. And, and in that sense, SEAL Team 6 is a brand, you know, the ultimate uh, brand for a new president. I will say that uh, we know from our own reporting that JSOC has been wanting to push 
into Yemen and increase their strikes and increase their raids um, against al-Qaeda on the Arabian Peninsula for some time. And the Obama administration uh, resisted. And to the extent that there was a new uh, lease on life under the Trump administration so far, we, we are seeing it. And, and that's why there are reports coming out of the Trump White House considering delegating down the authority to conduct uh, special operations, raids, and strikes in Yemen, for instance, without having to go up to the White House as previously done uh, in the Obama administration. And there's no question also that subsequent to the raid, there's been a huge effort by the administration to try to sell the thing as successful and leaking out to Barbara Starr, of all people. Uh, the Pentagon and, spokesperson who masquerades as the CNN Pentagon correspondent. When Barbara Starr reports it, it's a pretty good indication that you're getting a Pentagon-approved uh story to help shift the narrative. Vital intelligence that supports future victories. Uh, some pretty key words there to watch, Jake. We should expect to see more missions like this. You know, uh, I think that it's possible that some of it is done to justify, but I do know that JSOC and the SEALs, uh, in particular the counterterrorism world inside the Pentagon, um, wanted to go into Yemen uh, for the last uh, year and a half. And Marcy, you know, we, we also have the fact that the Saudis, you know, have been waging this scorched earth bombing with the uh, support of the United States, despite what, you know, uh, various officials may say about their concern over the weapons that the Saudis are using or the hitting of civilian targets. This is all being done and, and, and largely sponsored um, uh, by the United States and the refueling of the planes, the providing of intelligence, the use of U.S. weapon systems. And you also have the fact that al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is basically fighting two enemies on the ground inside of Yemen. They are fighting the southern Yemeni forces, but they're also fighting the Houthis, which the United States claims to be trying to unseat in this proxy war between the Saudis and, and to an increasing extent because of the war, uh, Iran. You followed this uh, covert, overt Yemen war from the very beginning stages of the Obama administration. Where, wh what do you think is important to be looking at right now? Both you and I have pointed to the many times in the past where the Saudis have been completely unreliable allies or the Yemenis, although at this point the Saudis are the ones running the show, where here's a strike, here's the intelligence to back a strike, and all of a sudden somebody who's actually an, a peace negotiator gets killed rather than somebody who is really working for al-Qaeda. We know in this raid that AQAP was tipped off. And they continued the raid anyway. And so, you know, I, I don't think there has been enough attention on who tipped off AQAP about the raid, because that has happened over and over and over again in Yemen. And the other thing that I find really interesting, and I don't know whether Matthew has insight on this, but uh, or, or you, Jeremy, but, um, you know, the role of Mattis in this, General Mattis, who Obama fired, as I understand it, partly because he was trying to pick a war with Iran. And so he, A, I think is responsible for pushing this raid that was ill thought out. But also, you know, he's gotten more authority out of it. He's about to be able to authorize his own strikes, um, which is something that Obama really tried hard to kind of micromanage. And so I, I'm really curious about his role in all of this, his trying to prove that his more aggressive stance that Obama rejected will work and to kind of prove himself for Trump. I don't know if that's going on. Well, let's let, let me ask Matthew. You know, there there has been this um turf war uh that has flared up and 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 gone down depending on the uh, administration and what actions are being authorized by the Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The White House between the DOD, particularly special operations forces within the DOD, and and the CIA. Uh, Mattis was a former CENTCOM commander, and combatant commanders often do want to be viewed as, they used to be called the commanders-in-chief uh, of, of their combatant command. Um, and so what Marcy is saying, I think, does, it's an interesting line to pursue, given that Mattis is of that uh, system and also uh, ran up against uh, President Obama. We will see a power grab um, from Mattis, and we'll see a pushing to go back to um, Bush 43 delegation of authorities to the Pentagon. And part of that is, um, I think, I, my read on that is actually Mattis is doing what he sees as the most responsible thing, which is taking the decision away from the president uh, and acting as a, a counterbalance from a, you know, ultimately the commander in chief who has the ultimate authority. But um, who, if willing to delegate some of that authority down, um, you're giving it from a you know an impetuous teenager to an adult, even if it's an adult who was once fired for trying to start a war with with Iran. Uh, it may be uh, you're not setting me at ease here, uh, Matthew. It's it's well, you know, I've got no, I no longer, uh, you know, I don't sleep at night anymore, which is why uh, I have three cups of coffee every morning. But um, that's my read, that Mattis is actually maybe one of the few adults in the room, and the cost of it is is that he's going to try to grab as much power as he can back from this White House. Marcy? I think that brings us back to the question of the deep state when when we're – it may not be CIA that's going to rescue us from, from Donald Trump, but it might be the generals. Oh, Lord. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, <laughs> I'll dissent from you two wise sages on that one. Uh, just, just finally, uh, Marcy, what's one story you think that people should be paying attention to that's not getting coverage? One of the things the Democrats are doing, they're really pushing this Russian story because they believe it's the short route to get rid of Donald Trump. And that comes at the cost of actually paying attention to what's happening with his policies rolling out. There's the immigrant ban, but especially the environmental things he's doing. And, and I know, I mean, I'm in Michigan. I'm in the state that screwed you guys all over because we voted for Trump. But the response to his EPA funding, for example, he gutted the Great Lakes initiative, has actually been really aggressive. And those are the things that I think are pissing people off way out here in flyover country. But there's this big disjunct between what people in D.C. and New York want to talk about Trump and what people who maybe are feeling these policies in a way that's more direct are feeling. And, and the environmental policies, I think, are one of them. Matthew Cole, one one story that's not getting enough attention that you think uh, should. Uh, well, it's North Korea, and it's getting some attention, but it's not getting enough because I think that uh, North Korea is to Donald Trump what Iran was to President Obama when they came into office, which is the real hot button issue. Uh, you know, and it's worse because Iran, the accusation was that they were trying to get and create a nuclear bomb uh, and weaponize one. Uh, North Korea has nuclear bombs. Uh, and uh, has improved their uh, weapons and ballistics uh, missiles technology. It was a little scary when Trump met Obama for the first time in that uh, White House meeting shortly after the election, and it came out that the thing that scared the shit out of Donald Trump was whatever Obama told him about North Korea. There's no such thing as too much coverage or attention being paid to the issue of North Korea right now. Matthew Cole, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Marcy Wheeler, thank you for joining us on Intercepted. Thank you. Marcy Wheeler joined us from Grand Rapids, Michigan. She runs the website Empty Wheel. And Matthew Cole is my colleague here at The Intercept. Coming up, we're going to dig into some of the details of this massive dump of CIA hacking documents released by WikiLeaks. And we're going to look at the realities facing undocumented immigrants in the U.S. now that Trump is in power. We'll also hear a song from the punk band Anti-Flag. This is Intercepted. Stay with us. Okay, we're back on Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. 
We turn now to the WikiLeaks publication of this humongous cache of internal CIA documents. We at The Intercept are still going through this initial batch. It's more than 8,700 files, and WikiLeaks says there's more to come. They're all from the CIA's Center for Cyber Intelligence in Langley, Virginia. And according to WikiLeaks, uh, contained within these files is the entire hacking capacity of the CIA. It's important to note that these documents indicate that the CIA itself lost control uh, over the secrecy of these documents connected to its own hacking operations. And unredacted versions of these files almost certainly are in the hands of other players in the United States, potentially around the world. We're going to be covering this extensively in the days and weeks to come at The Intercept. But for an initial take on what some of these documents uh, have to say about apps that we use, encrypted apps on our phone, like WhatsApp or Signal, and our personal so-called smart appliances that many people or increasingly people have in their houses. I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Josh Bagley and Sam Biddle. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Sam Biddle is our first two-time guest. Welcome back to the podcast. May there be many more. Thanks. So, Sam, what's the big takeaway for ordinary people, uh, people that are not uh, running around with classified documents or are not uh, organizing terrorist attacks, but are you know ordinary people concerned about their privacy? What did we learn about the capabilities that the CIA and its allies have that could impact ordinary folks? So luckily, there doesn't seem like there's much so far in the document suggesting any kind of targeting of a mass uh, or or blunt sweeping nature. Um, you know, the, these are targeted attacks. They require uh, some real effort. In some cases, legwork of actually you know plugging in a USB drive into a device the CIA wants to infect. Now uh, there are a lot of these attack methods, and they are very sophisticated. So you know this does provide more detail on what we sort of already knew about the CIA and the and. You know, of course, the NSA does the same thing too, right? And and now with like the with with the rise of the Alexa and Amazon Echo and Siri, etc., and the, what they call the Internet of Things, where you have these uh, so-called smart TVs. What do the documents reveal to us about how the Internet of Things can cause serious problems for privacy? The, the example in, in the documents that stands out to me the most is um, an attack called uh, Weeping Angel. That was the CIA uh, code name for it that targets Samsung smart TVs. Samsung is a giant of electronics manufacturing. Um, they sell one of the most popular t- models of TVs every year. They're in a lot of people's living rooms and bedrooms. Um, this method would trick Samsung TVs into basically faking being turned off. So the screen would be off, the lights would be off, but actually the guts of the TV would remain on. And uh, the microphone that is now in so many smart TVs for voice recognition controls would be rolling uh, and would be recording and then relaying that information back to um, a third party, presumably controlled by the CIA. So like the 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 60s hippies who were uh, saying, don't have a TV, they, they use the TV to spy on you, they they actually may have been up to onto something? Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's just the reality of buying electronics now in 2017 is that they are filled with things we don't really want. It's hard to find a TV or uh, a streaming music speaker that doesn't have a microphone or some sort of always on capability. And, you know, I, I think this is a really good example of not something that ordinary people need to be worried about by any means, unless they're, uh, you know, meeting with Vladimir Putin in a hotel room with a Samsung TV in it. But this is just the reality now. If if companies are going to build these gadgets that have microphones, the CIA is going to take advantage of it. Alexa, turn off Sam's mic. Uh, <laughs> uh, Alexa, turn on Josh Bagley's mic. Do these documents show that WhatsApp and Signal have been hacked? So they do not. Uh, I'm still reading the documents, but for me, the biggest takeaway is that Signal works and that you should use it. And unless you are a high value target of the CIA, anything you say will be just fine. I think that the the main takeaway is also that in order to break so-called the encryption on Signal or WhatsApp, you have to have root access to the device, which is a very expensive thing. It's a thing that agencies can do, but it costs them a lot of money. What One of the things that we reported on you and I in 2015 uh, in a, a piece that's on TheIntercept.com called The CIA Campaign to Steal Apple's Secrets is what the CIA, NSA, GCHQ, the British intelligence uh, equivalent of the NSA, that they were trying to access the actual firmware on the phone 
as a way of circumventing any kinds of protection. So talk about, because WikiLeaks framed this as basically that they have a way of working around uh, the encryption of signal in order to be able to read your encrypted communications. What are some ways that we've learned that the CIA or other intelligence agencies are able to do that? The CIA, since before the Apple iPhone was announced, had been working on methods to crack Apple's encryption and to be able to get inside of an iPhone or an iPad. Um, since 2005 or 2006, they have held annual secret jamborees um, held at Lockheed Martin's facility in Virginia, where researchers would test out and, and sort of relay research um, showing different attempts to get inside of Xcode and inside of other parts of the Apple operating system um, that signs software. And effectively, the, the message is that since Apple has been making phones, the CIA has been trying to find ways to get inside of them. But this is not really possible in a, in a sort of mass surveillance way. It's only possible in a targeted way because Apple's encryption is pretty good. And Signal and WhatsApp also have very strong protocols. So the only way to really get inside of these apps is to hack the phone itself. I basically, um, and when I'm talking to relatives, family members who are writing to me today saying, you know, you got us to use that Signal and now I'm reading that it was hacked. I, the way I was sort of trying to explain it to my mom, for instance, is like you can have five deadbolts on your door because you're afraid of someone breaking into your house. But if the burglar is already there hiding somewhere, he's going to be able to steal your shit. Right. Yeah. This is basically like saying, um, oh, someone can read uh, your encrypted email if they've taken your laptop and know all your passwords. And, you know, like it goes without saying that in a worst case scenario, the precautions you take are going to be uh, not worth a whole lot. But that doesn't mean you should stop taking those precautions. You know, I think if anything, this these disclosures today show why it's important to take precautions because there are a lot of very sophisticated people out there, be they at the CIA or otherwise, trying to break these things. For all we know, the CIA has broken WhatsApp and Signal. WikiLeaks just hasn't published any evidence supporting that. And until they have, or until someone has, we should uh, use these, these tools. Sam Biddle, thanks for being with us. Of course. Josh Bagley, thank you for your inaugural appearance on Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Alexa, we're done. Josh Bagley and Sam Biddle are both journalists at The Intercept. We have several articles up right now at TheIntercept.com analyzing various aspects of these WikiLeaks documents. Check them out at TheIntercept.com. And we must support the victims of crime. I have ordered the Department of Homeland Security to create an office to serve American victims. The office is called VOICE, Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement. We are providing a voice to those who have been ignored by our media and silenced by special interests. Joining us. That was Donald Trump last week announcing his new initiative that's supposedly intended to help victims of crimes committed by undocumented immigrants. Uh, but many immigrant rights groups and activists denounced the announcement of voice, as Trump calls it, as a stunt and a dangerous one at that, uh, a stunt that reinforces the false notion that's been promoted by Trump and his administration that there are somehow gangs of murderers and rapists and thugs uh, roaming the country after illegally sneaking across the U.S. border. Gang heads, gang members, killers. There, there's no doubt that undocumented immigrants commit crimes like documented immigrants or American citizens. But the very creation of this office and the fact that Trump promoted it at Congress, live address to the nation and to the world, and, and got praised for it by Democrats and Republicans alike, it was clearly aimed at justifying the widening attacks against immigrants that we're seeing now in this country. I believe that what we're seeing now is the beginning stages of Trump's promised deportation offensive, his mass deportation offensive. And it's being done under the guise of law and order and protecting real Americans. I'm joined now by independent journalist Aura Bogado. She recently has been contributing to Teen Vogue, a magazine that actually has emerged as an important news organization. It's not a joke. It's true. 
Teen Vogue is now a very good publication on the very issues that we talk about on this show and that we cover at The Intercept. Uh, I've worked with Aura before and known her for many years, and it's a pleasure to welcome Aura Bogado to Intercepted. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. Okay, Aura, let's let's begin with this uh, announcement that Trump made at his uh, congressional address that they're establishing what they call VOICE, Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement Office. You, what was your reaction when you heard that? I mean, it's it's absolutely ludicrous. It was also ludicrous that the press sort of lauded him as a unifying president suddenly and kind of missed this big part in which immigrants are once again being scapegoated. I was really troubled by the fact that he announced this sort of immediately after Adam Perrington um, shot and killed Srivanas Kuchipola in, in Kansas. 51-year-old Adam Puritan allegedly opened fire on Kuchibotla and his friend Alauk Marasani after witnesses say he shouted, get out of my country. This gentleman was a victim. He was a victim of, of white supremacy in Kansas, yet the narrative has sort of been been switched into, you know, having people think that immigrants are these horrible, horrible criminals. At the same time, another part that's really troubling for me as an immigrant myself is the idea that we're once again placed into this position in which we have to guarantee the public, we have to guarantee non-immigrants that we're not criminals. And uh, is, I think, really about about scapegoating. It's, it's, it's really scary to me that an office is now, uh, you know, being established to specifically deal uh, with this with this sort of imaginary problem. Well, now, now, you've covered this issue of the targeting of immigrants, including undocumented immigrants and the mass deportations um, under Obama. Uh, and now, you know, we have in one week recently, you had 680 or so ICE raids. Is this a change in policy or an escalation under Trump? Or is it a, as Trump sort of says, ICE is doing what it's always done? Under Trump, it is a big shift in policy in that who is deemed a priority for detention and for deportation has changed. So ICE agents who were somewhat beholden to the Obama administration in the past have much more free reign under Trump. So now anyone who's not only been convicted, but done something for which they could be convicted, fall under the category of of a person who's detainable and and deportable. And so that's what we're seeing now. You know, I would say that it's nothing short of, of a war on immigrants. We had 23-year-old uh, Daniel Ramirez, who was taken by ICE while uh, ICE was serving a warrant on his father. He's in detention in Tacoma. He's a DACA recipient. We have a group of men who were taken by ICE uh, while they were leaving a homeless shelter in Virginia. No one knows where they are now. We have a 26-year-old woman, um, Sara Bertran Hernandez. Uh, she's originally from El Salvador. She has a brain tumor. She was awaiting an emergency operation in a hospital when she was detained by ICE. Uh, she she was just released on bond. Most recently, a 22-year-old, Daniela Vargas, who was picked up by ICE immediately following a press conference in which she was, you know, vocally opposing deportations. She is now in detention in, in Louisiana. So what we know from the last month alone is that you can be picked up in your home while you're hanging out with your family. You can be picked up while leaving a church where you were staying to keep warm. You can be picked up in a hospital while you're awaiting a life-saving operation for your brain tumor. You can be picked up on the street uh, just for talking about this. So there is a shift. There is a shift in, in, in priority. I will say, though, that you know the architecture for all of this was certainly set up by the Obama administration. Obama, of course, introduced DACA. Um, but, but even within that, there was this sort of narrative around the idea that some people were safe while others were not. So Obama famously uh, pushed this felons, not families narrative. He you know, went on to say that several times. But the truth is that felons um, are families. <laughs> uh, that's, that's just the truth of the matter. Felons uh, are part of families. So a lot of times you have a family where one person may be a U.S.-born citizen, another is a DACA recipient, another may be convicted of something like robbing a liquor store and so forth. That's a family. All of those people are in one family, right? Some are untouchable by ICE. Others have a sort of, at least under Obama, a temporary reprieve by DACA and, and weren't being targeted. And others were the priority, the so-called felons, right? And that framing suspends the idea that 
that people, human beings, regardless of their immigration status, are capable of, of redemption and rehabilitation. And that's how we got three million deportations under Obama, which is largely forgotten in all of this, right? There's a lot of attention under about DACA recipients, but what about their parents? What about their cousins? What about their uncles and aunts? That sort of remains to be seen, and that, I think, has a lot to do with the way that the Obama administration framed deserving immigrants versus non-deserving immigrants. Uh, memos that were released in the past couple of weeks, one of them called for a surge in immigration judges and also uh, for detention capabilities to be expanded. We also understand that some local police forces around the country are being told to clear uh, spaces in their jails uh, that would normally be used for criminals to now start housing uh, people that are, are taken in some of these raids. And at the same time, uh, you have Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, taking away the Obama era directives that were intended to end the use of private prisons. And upwards of 70 percent of immigration detainees are already housed in private prisons. So you've covered both the prison industrial complex and this, uh, as you say, war against immigrants. What, what's your analysis of, of, of these moves and their connectivity? Detention centers aren't called prisons because immigration is technically a, a civil issue in the United States. They may have uh, places in which people have been convicted of crimes, et cetera, but that's why they're detention centers and, and not prisons. The Obama directive was, you know, attempting to change a lot of that. And we see that a lot of detention centers are privatized and are, you know, do hold immigrants. And if you want to deport 11 million people or even half of that, let's say you want to deport 5 million people, it's hard to just pick someone up and then drop them into another country. People need to be placed into detention for, for some period of time. The idea was that they would be there for a few days, maybe a couple of weeks until they're processed. We know that a lot of times uh, undocumented immigrants remain there for several weeks or months or even years uh, awaiting what an immigration judge is, is going to rule. If you want to deport 5 million people, you're going to need to create a lot more beds, right? Um, right now, there are about 40,000 beds in which uh, you can you can hold uh, immigrant detainees. How far are they going to try to expand that? Is it going to be double? Is it going to be triple? Either way, that doesn't reach the even million Mark, if the idea is like, oh, well, people are only going to temporarily be housed here, I think that the standards may be drastically reduced uh, to be like more like campgrounds or places where people really shouldn't be living under the premise that, well, they're going to be, you know, scurried through very quickly. Right. And, and let's remember, you know, how, how this is playing out in terms of the officials that Trump has put in these positions of power. You have, of, of course, we talked about Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller. But then you have uh, the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, who is a racist um, and has has shown himself to be an open and uh, public policy racist. And you have a, uh, a xenophobic general, John Kelly, uh, who is heading up the Department of Homeland Security. He was actually the head of the militarized solution to all of this uh, when he was the uh, commander of U.S. Uh, Southern Command. It's 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 not just like the, this is this is sort of Trump saying, let's do this. He's actually put people in a position of power that have long had uh, an agenda privately and in their public uh, policy positions uh, against immigrants. If you get some young kids who are coming in, managed to sneak into the United States with their parents, our Department of Homeland Security personnel gonna separate the children from their moms and dads. We, we have tremendous experience in dealing with unaccompanied minors. Uh, we turn them over to HHS uh, and they do a very, very good job of either putting them in kind of foster care or linking them up with parents or family members in the United States. Yes, I am considering in order to deter uh, more movement along this terribly dangerous network. I am considering uh, exactly that. They will be well cared for as we deal with their parents. I mean, up and down the, the entire administration, as, as you just pointed out, it's just racist after racist after racist. People that have, you know, run publications, uh, that have run um, <laughs> commands, that have run, uh, you know, campaigns that are just 
blatantly anti-immigrant, blatantly racist, um, on the record and and off the record. And that is very much who is, uh, I think, helping to craft these policies and will certainly help to enforce these policies. Um, And so, you know, going back to your question earlier about, like, is there a shift in policy? Again, I can definitely critique the Obama administration, but in terms of um, the tone, and maybe the tone isn't the the correct uh, focus or or word here, but in terms of the tone and I think the the hatred really with with which some of this is being thought out and and implemented is scary. This is this is different. This is very different. How are people resisting or fighting back in various immigrant? Uh, communities across the country? I would say that in uh, communities, in sort of the grassroots communities, um, small organizations, um, people are really, I think, coming up with creative ways of uh, keeping tabs uh, about, you know, where family members and certain community members are. There is a sort of growing kind of underground network of uh, people that are entering sanctuary. I think that there are conversations around uh, who can house people in sanctuary, right? Like who can who can sort of afford uh, in in you know a certain city, who can afford to sort of have an immigrant or even up to an immigrant family um, in one of the rooms of of their homes, et cetera. Another thing, um, that I've been hearing more and more of is that, you know, that the designation of a sanctuary city is just, it's a false, false facade for something that's, it makes you think that you're going to be safe. Uh, But there really sort of is no safety, particularly uh, under this administration. Again, um, the, the priority for deportation is increasingly becoming anyone and everyone who's, who's undocumented. So even in that, even at, at its face value, um, I, I don't know how valuable it's going to be uh, during the Trump era. Well, that was one of the I mean, first of all, I will say I was very heartened to see how many uh, both grassroots organizers, but also ordinary people went out to the uh, to airports across the country when Trump's Muslim ban was put into effect. Uh, but but one of the things that we saw happen was this overwhelming focus on um, certain people from Iraq, uh, for instance, who had worked with the U.S. military as part of the occupation and, and military presence there as translators or, or fixers. And and what it seems like is happening as a result of that, and John McCain and Lindsey Graham have been advocating this, is that they're going to say, oh, well, we're going to take Iraq off the list because we don't want any of the people that uh, collaborated with our military during these operations to be swept up in it. And I, I think that's part of what you're getting at is that if you if you make arguments that that are aimed at sort of the politicians in Washington rather than confronting the reality of what this means for people, it, it ends up being you end up chasing the tail all the time. And 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 that brings me to the question for you: like what what should ordinary people be doing right now uh, to confront Trump's uh, immigration policies, these raids, uh, and the expansion of these private prisons? You know, I think um, a good first step might be to. To remember that every single person is a human being, um, I think that that uh, even for myself in the past in different circumstances um, can be really helpful in terms of thinking who is redeemable and who is worth saving, and sort of responding to what's to what's happening now with that framework, because what's happening now can only happen when you dehumanize people to the point that they're disposable, when you dehumanize people to the point where they can be held in detention and no one knows what the next step is, where you, when you dehumanize people to the point where they can be deported to another country uh, which they've tried to escape from. Um, I think that a lot of this rests on dehumanization, everything from the, the voice program uh, to the detentions and deportations. It all rests on the assumption that enough people are going to go along with the idea that some people really aren't human being enough. And I think that the best way to sort of combat that on, on an everyday and even on a small and large level is to remember that everybody really is. Everybody is a human being. Auto Bogato, thank you for your work and thanks for being with us on Intercepted. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Auto Bogato is an independent journalist who most recently has been contributing to Teen Vogue. To end today's show, we turn to the Pittsburgh-based punk band Anti-Flag. 
Recently, they huddled in a garage and recorded an acoustic version of their song, Brandenburg Gate, and they recorded it just for Intercepted. Well, I lost my baby to a foreign war. Many thanks to our friends from Anti-Flag. That was a performance of their song, Brandenburg Gate. That does it for this week's show. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack DeZadoro, and our executive producer is Letal Molad. Rick Kwan mixed the show. We had production assistance from Elise Swain. Our music was composed by DJ Spooky. And special thanks to Anthony Atamanik, who, as always, stars as Donald Trump on Intercepted. As we've said before, and I'll say it again, we are a new show. We need your support. Tell your friends. Tell your foes. Go on to iTunes, Google Play, wherever you do such things. Give us a rating if you feel so inclined. Even better, give us a review. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. All right. Okay. Now it's it's finished. There's nothing else funny. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.